0: your pew bibles on page 814. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few; therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord for the of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray together. Father, one day um, the entire planet Earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. This planet is already full of your glory. What it's not full of is the knowledge of your glory in the face and work of Jesus Christ. And so what we're asking now, we join together and we ask now before we look together at your word, that you would work by the power of your Spirit to make the glory of Jesus Christ known to those who are his sheep. We pray that you would strengthen uh, all of your children here this morning with a clear-eyed vision of your Son, and we pray that you would also call out of darkness and into your marvelous light many This morning, so that this would be the day of their salvation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so excited to be back in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Just really looking forward to that and uh, grateful for God's providence. Uh, We're going to pick up this morning exactly where we left off at the end of May when we uh, transitioned away for our summer series on the doctrines of grace. So we're back at the end of chapter 9. Now, when you preach consecutively, or as a church, when you study your way consecutively through a book of the Bible, there are advantages and then there are disadvantages to that approach. The greatest advantage of it is that as you're going through a book consecutively, the greatest advantage is that you can't skip stuff, right? I mean, there's always stuff in the Bible that makes us uncomfortable that we would prefer to avoid. And when you're just approaching things thematically, it's really easy to cherry-pick texts that seem to only raise questions that you feel like you already have the answer to. Now, that's the greatest advantage of this approach uh, to preaching and study together as a congregation. You can't avoid texts uh, that you might want to avoid because everyone knows if you do, right? So if nothing else, peer pressure keeps you focused. So what's the greatest disadvantage? Well, the greatest disadvantage is that you can't avoid texts you'd want to avoid. You can't avoid texts that expose you. You can't avoid texts that challenge you, that raise questions, that infringe upon your liberties. And friends, uh, these four verses have been like that for me. When I got to them at the end of May, God... um, challenged me through them, and I feel as though Jesus has been staring me in the eye through these four verses for three months, and he hasn't blinked once. There is a lot, a lot to share with you from these four verses, and we're going to do it in two installments this week and next week. We're going to see, as we move from the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10, 11, and 12, we're going to see uh, a principle introduced in these verses, and then we're going to watch Jesus develop it and reinforce it over and over and over again over these, in these coming chapters, and I would summarize the principle this way. Uh, I might change the way I, f- I formulate it in the coming weeks, but for now, this is the best I could do what we're going to see this morning in this passage, next week again in this passage and in the coming weeks, is that Jesus does not call us to himself so that we can keep him for ourselves or to ourselves. Jesus never calls anyone to himself so that they can keep him for themselves or to themselves. Discipleship always gives us An individual relationship with Jesus. Always. There is always a one-on-one. This is the wonder of the gospel, right? We don't have a generic relationship with Jesus where he just relates to us as a crowd. Discipleship, following Jesus, always gives us an individual relationship with him. One-on-one where he knows your name and you know his And he identifies you as one of his sheep. But you know what? As individual as that relationship is, it's never private. It's never just for you. It's never just for me. When Jesus calls us to himself, he doesn't do that so that we can keep him to ourselves or for ourselves. Note what discipleship always means, right? as we're going to see uh, Matthew uh, emphasize again and again. Uh, in the teaching of our Lord, is that there's always supposed to be this awareness that we hold this treasure of the gospel in trust, and therefore, we have to think all of us about mission, about witnessing for Christ and representing Him in the world. This is what we're going to be thinking. Uh, You know, really, what I'm saying is that the relational riches that Jesus pours out upon us He expects to pour through us into the world. I need to hear that. Because I love to think about the pour in part. I love that. I don't, I don't, I'm scared about the pouring out part. But it's not optional. And you know, if you think back to Matthew's gospel in the early part of the gospel, when he calls uh, Simon Peter and Andrew, do you remember what he says? He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's chapter 4, verse 19. And what's happened since then is that Jesus has, they've followed him, and Jesus has poured himself into poured himself into his disciples in Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he's given them a model of what ministry is supposed to be like. They watch him minister to the crowds. And now at the end of chapter 9, we're right at this transition point where Jesus is about to call his disciples to him in a way where he entrusts ministry to them in mission. And that's what chapter 10 is about. And at this very critical time... Uh, We, in in the flow of the gospel, we're now looking at a text where we see that before Jesus sends his disciples out in mission, he's got to do some preparatory work in them. And there's basically three, uh, you know, we're going to talk over the next two weeks about three ways in which Jesus prepares his disciples and us right for mission. When I say mission, I'm not just talking about the nations, I'm also talking about the neighborhoods. I'm talking about your workplace, I'm talking about Somalia, I'm talking about, you know, DeBerry, and Orange City, and New Smyrna Beach, I'm talking about all of them. I'm talking about your family, okay? And there are three things that Jesus has to correct. He wants our vision to be corrected and synchronized in three ways. He wants us, before he sends us out, he wants us to see the world the way he sees the world, to see ourselves the way he sees us and understands us, and to see him the way he understands himself. Now, those sound like obvious things, and to a large degree they are, but we need to do this spade work together. So this morning, we're going to focus on the first one, really this first uh, vision correction, which is essential for mission, and that is how Jesus teaches us to see and understand the world and its lostness. And uh, so I've got three uh, headings this morning, three ways he does that, three ways that Jesus corrects our vision of the world. First, by what he sees in the world. Secondly, by what he feels about the world or toward the world. And uh, thirdly, by what he says about the world. What Jesus sees in the world, what Jesus feels toward the world, and what he says about the world. Let's first look at what Jesus sees in the world. And verse uh, 36 uh, is a very significant verse. I don't know if you noticed it. I I mentioned this back in May uh, when I touched on this verse, but it is a very shocking verse verse. When he, speaking about Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's an amazing verse because you see what's happening. You see what the Holy Spirit is doing with that verse. He is literally putting us, I mean, this is It is hard to imagine a more sacred window than that verse. Because you know what that verse is saying? That verse is saying, let me make sure you understand what Jesus saw and what he felt. You see what that verse is doing? That verse is taking us inside Jesus. We're not just watching him. We're inside of him in verse 36, watching the world. Now, that's amazing. And you might say, well, how does Matthew know that? Well, Matthew was with Jesus for three years. Do you think it's possible Jesus told him what he saw and what he felt? I think it is. That's amazing. The Holy Spirit ushers us into the most holy courts there are in the universe. The heart and mind of Jesus Christ. To let us know what Jesus saw when he looked at the crowds and what he felt And you know, because it's Jesus seeing, because it's Jesus seeing, that means he's seeing reality. He is able to see beneath the surface. When Jesus, friends, when Jesus looks at the world, he sees lostness. He sees great need, and it is reality. You know, for us, perception is very rarely reality, right? Right? How often have you been wrong, massively wrong, when you looked at the appearance of something, like five seconds ago? How about that for me? OK? But for Jesus, perception is reality, right? And so this is the true condition of men. Whether or not we realize it, I don't expect the world to agree with you or to agree with Jesus. It, and we don't need the world to agree with us on this, right? This is what Jesus sees. And he sees symptoms and he sees a disease. The symptoms are that they were harassed and helpless. I mean, can you imagine how tired Jesus is at this point? I mean... When you go back and you read what he did in chapters 8 and 9 and all the different people he cared for and all the amazing situations in which he involved himself, and then at the end of chapter 9, verse 35, you've got this summary passage that kind of gives us the big overview, the summary description of this huge overview of what Jesus has been doing, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, and, and still the people are following him. And when he looks on them, he doesn't see a to-do list. He looks and he sees their needs. Why are they following me? They're harassed and helpless. It's an amazing description of what it means to be uh, helpless and you know under a power that you can't master. Uh, troubled, burdened in a way that you can't fix or... Uh, extricate yourself from. That's the symptom. And there's all kinds of different ways that people are harassed and helpless. Right? I mean, it's not all one need that, that the people bring to him. And, and that, those are the symptoms. But Jesus sees to the heart of the disease, doesn't he? Look in verse 36. They were harassed and helpless. What, what, what's underneath that surface is that they were, the, the disease is that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, now that's very interesting. You know, you and I know what it's like to feel harassed and helpless. You and I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed. And what's very important about the clarification that that second half of verse 36 gives us is it makes very clear that what's at the root of their feeling and our feeling, harassed and helpless, is not ultimately a situational thing, but it's a relational reality, right? I mean, When we look at ourselves through the through our own lenses, we look at what causes our harassment and what makes us overwhelmed, and we view those things—at least we tend uh, to—in terms of our circumstances. Right? If only I was out of this circumstance, then I would be okay. If only this variable in my life changed, then I would be okay. You know, if I only got more money, if I only had this job, if this relate that person, just get with the program if I didn't have this health problem. Those are the symptoms. The ultimate reality that Jesus sees, and again, for him, perception is reality because of who he is. The ultimate need is not circumstantial change, but relational change. A a sheep... Man's fundamental crisis, your fundamental crisis, the greatest problem in my life, the greatest problem in your life, the greatest problem in every, the life of everyone whom you're going to meet is not their circumstances. The real story is the relational crisis. You see, sheep without a shepherd should be an oxymoron, right? Right? Sheep without a shepherd are vulnerable. Sheep without a shepherd are exposed. They're in danger. And when Jesus looks at people, when he looks at the world, he sees lostness. And lostness means not just that their lives, are hard, their lives are hard. Lostness means that they are living like sheep away from their shepherd, which is not how sheep are designed to live. Now, we need to take this one level deeper, because of the way the shepherd image works in the Bible. The shepherd image in the Bible is a king image. We saw that from Ezekiel 34. Uh, You can even see it at the beginning of Matthew's gospel in chapter 2, verse 6, when Micah Micah 5, verse 2, is quoted by the scholars of the law when Herod is trying to figure out where Jesus has been born. And they say, well, according to Micah 5, 2, He's been born in Bethlehem and and the Micah prophecy says it speaks about a ruler a sh- a shepherd who will rule my people or a ruler who will shepherd my people So within Matthew's gospel, this idea of a shepherd is a kingly image. And so what Jesus is ultimately seeing, and and, and therefore what this text is ultimately saying to us, is that when Jesus looks at the lostness of the world, and when we look at the lostness of the world through Jesus' eyes, what we are to see is that man's fundamental need, the need from which all other needs spring, is this living away from the king that we were designed to live for. And that king is God. Now it's a hard thing for Americans to swallow, but I'm gonna say it anyway. We were made to be monarchists. The universe is not a republic. The universe is not a democracy. The universe is a monarchy. That's reality. There's a king. And there is no way, no matter what you read there is, or what you believe, there is no way that you or I will ever be happy or thrive or fulfill the purpose for which we were created until we get with the program in the universe that we are designed to be royalists. And there is one king and he is good. Friends, if you're non-Christian, I know this sounds crazy to you. It's not. Every time you walk through the uh, checkout stand at Publix, and you see those magazines, most of which are just absolute garbage, right? But who's on those? I mean, I'm not on those. Are you on those? Who's on those? Celebrities? are celebrities? Why do we have a celebrity-obsessed culture? Why? You know why? Because we were made to be monarchists. We are drawn to admire those we consider to be above us. It's no accident. And friends, what is so sad is that we settle, we we worship the, the president of our treehouse club, in comparison to the king of the universe. Jesus sees right through it. Oh, I wish, I wish. We could talk about this for days. But a human being's heart is not meant to thrive apart from living under the scepter of the king for whom you and I were made. And what's amazing about Jesus is he has come. That's our fundamental need, right? We need this king. We are living apart from the king. We're not living under his rule. We're not living for his glory. We're not rejoicing in his goodness. We're not recognizing that all our life is a royal grant from him, a sacred trust that he's given to us. All our abilities and all our property and all our relationship and every heartbeat we get is a royal grant from the throne of God and we live like either like we're accidents or like we're our own owners or like the only person we ever have to answer to is us and our pleasure and what does God do in response to that yes he's angry about it he is angry about it we're rebels but that's not all he does he sends his son in the world Jesus standing in front of all these people is the king who has come he has come and he himself is the very good news of the gospel that he's proclaiming Do you notice how in verse 35 it says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, notice this phrase, proclaiming the gospel of the king. Well, gospel literally means good news. So it could read like this, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Well, what is the good news of God's kingdom? The king. And he's come. And guess what, friends? He's not just in chapter 9 anymore. He's right here. He's right here this morning, standing forth from his word by his spirit. He rules in this room. He's real. He's true. And he is not just a distant, removed monarch. He's a king who's come lower than any of his subjects and the rebels against him. And he has personally, in his life and death and resurrection, absorbed all the costs and all the consequences of our rebellion against him. And now he calls for our surrender, our unconditional surrender, that we might enter into the joy of his kingdom. Amazing. This is what Jesus sees. He's an amazing king. He's come. And it's not just what he sees, friends, that teaches us to look at the world differently. It's also what he feels about the world that is so critical. And that's our second point. You know, you might think that if what I've said about the kingship of God and Jesus himself being the good news of the kingdom, that when he shows up and he sees all these sinners and these people who are just in a tangled web of the consequences of their sin, you might think he would say, serves you right. You didn't listen, told you so. You got what you deserved. But here's the other part of the sacred window that Matthew gives us in verse 36. We not only know what he saw, we know what he felt. When he looked out at the lostness of the world, look at what it says. He had compassion. Now, if it's true that when Jesus sees the lostness of men, he sees the reality of their lostness. It's equally true that when Jesus feels the implications of the lostness of men, that his feeling is the measure of reality. It is a terrible thing to be lost. It is a terrible thing to be lost to be estranged from God, to be under the wrath of God, to not know who you are and you never will until you know the God who made you. To have your conscience battered and bruised night after night after night because try as you might like Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, you might say that there is no absolute truth but your conscience rebuts you and you know that you are going to have to answer for things in your life. To be lost and to have no answer for conscience. To be lost and to be utterly alone. To live believing that you are the center of your own universe when you know, when you're honest and you look in the mirror and you get away from people that you're not good enough or strong enough or wise enough. Friend, it is a terrible thing to be lost. And the worst thing of it all is it's unnecessary. It's because the king has come. He came the first time to purchase salvation for anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in him. And he's here again this morning. He's not done. You see, this amazing word that that Matthew uh, uses that he had compassion for them is is a word that is there is no one word in English. There's a whole bunch of concepts that are tied together here. It's a very strong word. It's like this beautiful bouquet, and it wraps up mercy, and it wraps up grace and empathy. It's this very powerful word. And one of the commentators, my favorite commentator on the Gospel of Matthew, he says, the way we ought to render this is that his heart went out to them. And I love that. His heart went out to them. Because even in English, right, the word compassion means to suffer with. And so, Jesus said, what this is emphasizing is that when Jesus, he sees what's wrong with men, he sees their lostness, and then he doesn't do it just as a spectator, he responds, right? He has a a feeling, and his heart goes out, and I love that, because that really is what the gospel is about, right? This wonder that, that Jesus gave his all, his whole self, held nothing back for the lost, Doesn't that amaze you? It amazes me. He was entitled to hold everything back and he held nothing back down to his last breath, his last heartbeat. And then after he was crucified and all his disciples abandoned him, he could have withheld himself. He could have risen from the dead to be vindicated and just gone straight to the Father's right hand and never told the disciples because they abandoned him. Did he do that? No. (laughs) Because his heart, his resurrected heart, went out to his disciples. And then when he ascended to the Father's right hand and received from the Father as the reward for his ministry the full unrestrained portion of the Holy Spirit, he could have said, Well, okay. Maybe one day they'll turn around. His heart went out to them again. And then, friends, somehow... Amazingly, and we'll talk more about this next week, the gospel got to you. Got to you and to me. Jesus' heart went out to us individually. It's amazing. And this morning, it is such a great privilege for me as your pastor, and such a great privilege for me as a Christian to remind myself and you that Jesus still has not pulled his heart back from the world. His heart is going out even now in this room. Of course, not only in this room, but just as certainly in this room. And this is not the heart of Jesus from Matthew 9. This is a much stronger heart. This is an exalted heart. This is the heart of a king under whose feet everything has been put in subjection. This is the heart of a king who... Right, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and his heart is going out because he has compassion on the lost. Now, you think about okay, how do we apply this? Well, the first way to apply it is, it, friend, if you are a non Christian, I, I assume that you have come into this sanctuary. Uh, with all kinds of caricatures about who Jesus is and what he's like. And unfortunately, the source of most of those caricatures is probably us. I'm sorry. We don't do a very good job most of the time showing forth what Jesus is actually like. We paint poorly. But this text does not paint poorly. This is what he's like. And so if you're a non-Christian... The most important thing for you to see is that Jesus' heart is still going out to you specifically this morning as a lost person. He has compassion for you in your lostness. Now, that compassion is not going to leave you as you are. You don't get, it's not tame. He means to change you by claiming you for himself. But it's available to you this morning. That's an amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing. But the second application is for us who are Christians. If we think about how Jesus has had this great compassion on um, non-Christians and the loss, and you feel and, and we need to feel not just the fact of his compassion, but also the force of it, that this is a very uh, strong word. And why is it that he isn't angry when he looks at these crowds? Why is it that he's not disgusted when he looks at these crowds? Why is it that he's not at least massively disappointed in them and saying, you know, compassion? I mean, come on, Jesus. They are not doing what you said. The reason all this stuff has happened to them is because they have loved the creature and the creation more than their creator who's blessed forever. Haven't they gotten what they deserved? Is Jesus angry about the sins of the crowd? Yes. More than we know. So is his compassion then? What is it? Is it naive? Does he just have this naive, you know, oh, they're just victims? No, no, not at all. See, God's heart is very complex. Jesus' heart is infinitely complex, right? Right? Just like we saw in the reflection quote, you know, the great exercise of faith is to keep both sin and the deliverance from sin together. Okay, well, the reason that's a great exercise of faith is because that was those were the, the parts of Jesus' ministry, right? He's the, the one who's the holy judge who comes into the world, right, and... And he doesn't let anyone off the hook. He doesn't fudge the corners of God's law whatsoever. In fact, he has come, Matthew 5.17, to fulfill the law. But at the very same time, he's come as this deliverer. This is what is so amazing about the gospel. The gospel is always going to take us deeper into things. It's never going to be shallow. And so Jesus is standing there. And yes, his compassion is a deep compassion. And it's also an utterly realistic compassion. He knows that every one of those people is lost ultimately because of their own sin. Same here. But what makes that compassion so amazing is that it's utterly realistic, right? Jesus knows the whole scope of the this, the nature of our problem is it's a fully informed compassion. And, and it's his utterly realistic response to the tangled web of our lostness. My non-Christian friends, I want you to hear that. Jesus is not dealing with a caricature of you. When his heart goes out to you this morning, he is not dealing with just a little part of who you are. He knows the full story better than you do. And his compassion is going out. Now, friends... That's a gut check for me. I, 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 I suspect it is for you as well. I mean, we live in an age that is very polarized and very polarizing. And I believe that one of the chief temptations for believers in our age right now, especially in our media culture and all that stuff, is, is to, we have got to guard ourselves against being conformed to the way the world thinks about things. This is Romans 12, 2, right? Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be squeezed by the world into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it is very easy to listen to a media culture in which Christians are demonized and then to return the favor. But you see, friends, non-Christians, a Christian must never regard non-Christians as their opponents. I'm going to say that again. A Christian must never regard a non-Christian as his or her opponent. I don't care what the non-Christian is doing. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It doesn't matter if the non-Christians think of us as their opponents. That's their business. They're accountable to God for that. But what we're accountable to is to feel toward them what Jesus feels toward them which is how he felt toward us when we were his opponents. And so non-Christians regardless of their political persuasion regardless of their cultural stance friends they must always be the objects of our compassion. Because you and I were of his. Now That's a summons to repentance. There's nobody who gets out of that mesh. I'm right in the middle now of this massive, it's just descended on me like a wildfire. This massive man crush on the Lord of the Rings again. I'm just so swept up in it right now. I think it's because the Hobbit is coming. I just, oh my goodness. So I've been reading Tolkien's letters and oh, it's completely geeky. And this idea of compassion is a huge theme in the Lord of the Rings. I wonder if any of you fellow geeks, and some of you, are, you're free from this geekdom, and you should, I guess, be grateful. Just bow your head and say thanks for it, okay, that you're free. But for those of you who know the Lord of the Rings, do you know that there is one line that is repeated in all three of the books? And it really is the thematic center of the epic? And that line, oh, see, you didn't know. Gotcha. But now you're going to know, and so you're going to be able to go everywhere and just kind of be smug, okay? The line is this. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. In other words, if, if you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, Bilbo is the, is the, is the hobbit. Oh, this is going to get thick here. But Bilbo's the hobbit who finds the ring, the ring of power. And and Bilbo finds the ring that had originally been held by this evil creature, Gollum. Bilbo takes the ring. He doesn't know that it belongs to Gollum, but he keeps it. And Gollum uh, really wants to kill Bilbo. And yet Bilbo, though he has a sword, does not strike back at Gollum. He shows pity toward him. Now later on, Frodo, you with me still? Frodo, who is the ring bearer, the one who is charged with responsibility for taking the ring back into the, the cracks of doom and destroying it, he is talking with Gandalf, the wizard, and he regrets that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Listen to how this unfolds. So Frodo says this. What a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had a chance. And Gandalf the wizard replies, Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy, not to strike without need. And he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that Bilbo took so little hurt from the evil and escaped in the end because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity." I am sorry, said Frodo, but I am frightened and I do not feel any pity for Gollum. And Gandalf replies this way, he says, You have not seen him. See, I thought of that when I was thinking about how Matthew 9.36 begins with showing us what Jesus saw about the lostness of the world. No, and I don't want to, said Frodo. Now, at any rate, he is as bad as an orc, that's a ruined creature, and just an enemy. He deserves death. Deserves it, Gandalf says, I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not least. And, of course, if you know the story, you know it does. Now, here's why I read that to you. Because, friends, Tolkien is putting his finger on something that's not just at the heart of his epic, it's at the heart of reality. Friends, the pity, the mercy, the compassion of Jesus Christ rules the fate of many. This is the universe. This is what Matthew 9.36 is showing us, that the king has come. The good news of the kingdom is that the king has come and he has come with a message of his work, that his compassion may rule the fate of any who will come to him. Friends, that's why I'm a Christian. That's why you're a Christian if you're a believer. That's the hope that we have to offer you if you're a non-Christian. The compassion of Jesus Christ ruling like a king's compassion to overpower the, the, the scars and the sin of your past, to guard you and keep you in the present, to rule like a king to keep you for the future. That is the gospel. And Jesus says, not only does he feel, but then he tells us how to think about the world. See, I have felt over these last three months as I've been working through these verses and thinking about them and praying about them, I feel like what's been happening to my heart is is the Lord has been exposing these hardnesses in my own heart toward non-Christians and toward the world and and, and showing me that my heart is so out of sync with Jesus's, so out of sync with Jesus's in this way. And it's not just what Jesus sees and what he feels, but it's also what he says about the world. That's our our third point. Do you notice how he describes the world in verse 37 and 38? He says to his disciples, and we've moved, you know, once you get to verse 37, You're stepping out of this interior view of Jesus, and now what Matthew's recording is what Jesus actually said to his disciples. Now he speaks from that compassion and from that perception of the lostness, and what he tells to his disciples is that the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. That's an amazing way to look at the world, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is, you know, all these crowds are here. Jesus, I, I just imagine him, you know, taking his arms and spreading them out and saying, there's a harvest. There's a harvest. And it's plentiful. I, what an amazing statement of God's sovereignty, right? I mean, there's so much sin and brokenness in the world. And when Jesus is there, when the king is there, when he's standing right in the midst of the world he made, he says, there's a harvest. God's in control here. God's in control. And there's hope, right? The world is not barren. There is opportunity, right? It's not exhausted by Jesus' healing and teaching, right? There's opportunity that he means for us to see and respond to, that he's entrusting to us. There is opportunity. The world is not a barren place. So friends, think about those circles and those relationships in your life that you've written off. There is more opportunity there than you think there is. Not because of your strength, right? But because of Jesus' compassion and his willingness, right, to enter into the world. And it's also an amazing statement of urgency, right? The harvest is plentiful. Friends, there is so much brokenness and lostness in the world, the scars of sin. I, I was—I was te- told a couple of you uh, this that a couple of weeks ago I was out for a walk, and suddenly the, just the question came in my mind: um, Do I know anybody at, at more than a superficial level whose life isn't full of suffering, Christian and non-Christian? I'd never thought about that question before. It's an interesting question. You know what? I don't know anybody whose life isn't full of suffering. Neither do you. It's a plentiful harvest, and and it's an urgent harvest. It's a harvest, friends. That means the time is full, the time is ready, because God is ready. God stands ready. The king has come with the good news of his own person and work, and he is ready he is ready to save, ready to heal, ready to forgive, ready to call people to himself. And and those who have already been called to him need to remember this. Friends, we know that ultimately, right, Jesus' vision of the world's lostness didn't end. He wasn't, he wasn't a spectator. We know that his, loss, the, his vision of the world's lostness continued to sharpen until all the way when he got to Calvary and he literally saw the world's lostness from the inside. He went ahead. Jesus' death on the cross, you know what it is? It's a preview. It's Jesus moving ahead to the end of the road of every single human being. Every single human being outside of Christ is going to be under the judgment of God. And what happened at Calvary is that Jesus jumped ahead of all of us to the end of our lives, showing us the destiny of those who do not repent and trust in his work. And he sees the lostness. In all of its terrible consequences, the one who sends his heart out to you this morning and to me this morning and through us to the world sees. He sends because he sees, and his compassion is not done. His heart continues to go out, continues to reach toward the world. He is able Right, because of his identification with us and his substitution for us on the cross and taking the penalty of our sins and then rising again from the dead to verify who he is, he has demonstrated the fullness of his compassion for you. This is not an armchair compassion. This is a compassion that has totally identified with your needs before God. Friends, what I think... What I believe uh, Jesus uh, wants to do this morning is when we depart this place, I believe that what he wants to do is to send each one of us back into the circles where he has placed us. Not that we chose for ourselves, but that he chose for us. And he wants to send us back into those circles with his eyes, with his heart, and with his interpretation of the world. So what I encourage you to do is to take these verses. I'm I'm usually not very specific about the application I urge upon you, but I am going to be this week because it has been so helpful to me over the last three months to take up verse 36 and to ask Jesus this week to give you eyes like his, to see the world through his eyes and to enable you to feel the world in its lostness through his heart and as he does that as he answers those prayers he will conform us to his image let's pray Lord we um, we say not our will but your will give us your eyes And change us so that we feel with your heart. We pray in your name. Amen.